When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What I've heard from more than one person, which I think it's hilarious, is they will send this book to like their mother or their churchiest auntie with no explanation. So the first thing they wouldn't read is Eula. And so they then will text or call the person that gave them the book, usually another black woman, and uh-huh. be like, what is this? <laughs> Hi, Disha. Hi, Donnie. (laughs) Well, today is a very exciting day for the Ursa podcast because this is the day I've been waiting for. We are going deep on a little short story collection that you may have heard of before. It is called (laughs) The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I'm so excited. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You're excited. I'm excited because I just reread this beautiful collection for the third time over the weekend. And I don't really know what I'm going to say except basically gush. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, um, this book has been out now for two years. um, First published by West Virginia University Press in 2020. And this is a game changing short story collection. But we're going to let the numerous awards and accolades speak for themselves. So The Secret Lives of Church Ladies was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2020. It won the Penn Faulkner Award 2021, won the Story Prize 2020, also the winner of the LA Times Book Prize, the Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, and now coming soon to HBO Max in a dramatic series produced by Tessa Thompson. How amazing is that? So excited. (laughs) And so today we're going to dig into everything about this collection with Disha, how she first came up with the idea and the initial stories. And we're going to go down to the sentence level on the stories that stuck with me, meaning all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So please consider this a spoiler alert. We're going to be talking about Tashita. We're going to be talking about Peach Cobbler. We're going to be talking about JL. All of it, everybody, so excited. But first, some quick housekeeping. If you'd like to support our show, leave us a five-star review and comment on Apple Podcasts. You can also help us fund our next season of interviews and stories by going to ursastory.com slash join or subscribing right inside Apple Podcasts. Now, we're about to go in. Let's go, let's go. (laughs) Okay, so this is a story that I have heard a few times now, but for those who are listening that need a little bit of inspiration, who love the short story form, aren't sure about how short story collections perform, how they get out there, how do they get to agents, all of that stuff. Can you talk about the backstory of this collection and how it came to be published? 
Yes. So Church Ladies was born because I was trying to write a novel, trying unsuccessfully to write a novel. Um, It's a novel I've been working on since 2007. And um, in the meantime, I co-wrote a nonfiction book with my ex-husband, a book on co-parenting, and that's how we got an agent. And my agent has been saying to me since 2013, when the co-parenting book came out, you know, when, when that novel's ready, you know, I'm ready for it. And the novel to date still is not ready. (laughs) And so, but what I was doing, you know, more so than working on that novel or when I would, you know, kind of stall on the novel, I was started writing short stories. And um, there were two that my agent had read and heard me read at events. And so she had this idea that while I was on what she called hiatus from the novel, I just called it not working on it, um, (laughs) that, you know, I could pivot and make a collection, build a collection around these short stories. And she saw themes running through that I hadn't really thought about thematically because I hadn't thought about the stories thematically because I wasn't thinking about a collection, um, but, you know, around Black women, sex, and the Black church. And once she said it, and once she referred to them as church lady stories, you know, Mm. I was very interested in that. And I was like, yeah, that feels more doable than this book that I've been stuck on for, for so long. Not because writing short stories or building a collection is easy, not by any stretch, but I could see a clearer path than I could with the novel where I really was just in over my head. And so I got really intentional about these stories and how they could come together and what else could I write that could, you know, help form this cohesive collection. And then my agent is a Virgo like I am. So she got very specific and she said, (laughs) when you publish three of them, we'll have the basis, we'll have a partial manuscript and we could go to market with that and try and get a book deal. And so I was like, okay, like I was that kid in school that liked homework, you know, uh, you and I went to a high school that was for kids that liked Woo. homework. <laughs> Let me tell you, our high school was harder than college for me. It was. It was. And my mother would worry about me with all the books that we had to carry in our book yes. bags. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, so, I you know. know, like you tell me, give me an assignment. It's done. It is absolutely yes. done. Now, of course, I didn't control the whole getting published part. But really, I really just got to work writing stories. And so by the time the third story was published, I had six stories altogether um, as the basis for this collection. And, and that's um, what we went to market with. And my agent managed my expectations. Um, as you, you know, you've probably heard this as a fiction writer yourself that, you know, publishers don't want short story collections. Right. Readers even tell me, I usually don't read short stories, or this is the first short story collection I've ever read. I don't like short stories, but, you know, and so I went into the process with a couple of thoughts. One, I did not have high hopes that like this was going to be an easy book to sell and that if it did sell, that it, you know there was not going to be any big fat advance or, or anything like that. And that was fine because I just wanted the book in the world and I wanted, I was willing to self-publish it if it didn't get a deal. Like I was cool with that. And so, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I felt like I was going into it emotionally in a good place. Um, the other thought that I had was that Sure, somebody may want to publish it, but based on horror stories I'd heard about publishing, 
um, I just envisioned this editor, a white editor, which is mm. more most likely, was going to try and you know whitewash the characters or you know because there are no black. I'm sorry, there are no white characters in the book, and the gaze is mm-hmm. black women's gaze, the gaze mm-hmm. exclusively. Um, and there's uh, a lot of um, black culture, black Southern culture. I don't translate it. I don't explain things. I assume a reader who can either either has the familiarity or who knows how to Google. Um, But I knew from other writers that that kind of approach could be challenged. And I was like, I was so defensive. (laughs) It's this process. It was like, I'll publish it myself. Or if you want to publish it and you want me to change it, I will save this advance and give it back to you. If you try to mm. ask me to compromise, I was, you know, I, I love editing. You know, I love being edited. I love working with like really smart editors, tough editors, insightful editors. You know, for me, the best part of writing is revision. So it's not like I didn't want to revise or I didn't want to be edited. I wanted that, but not on those terms that would diminish. Because um, right. to me, any of those kinds of changes that presume a white audience or center a white audience um, would be diminishing my work. And so I was not going to do that. And I was prepared to walk away from anyone who expected me to do that. Um, but lo and behold, no one asked me <laughs> to do that. Um, West Virginia University Press, my agent was in touch with the head of the press uh, while I was still working on um, writing the stories and getting them published. And he sh- shared an interest uh, with her at that time. So when the, the collection was ready to go out as a partial manuscript, they were definitely on the list. Everyone rejected church ladies except West Virginia University Press. And I say that proudly because I, I think it says a lot about um, the publishing industry. And I think it's something to encourage writers who experience a lot of rejection that it's not personal it's not always a statement on the quality of your work because it's not like they accepted church ladies and then had to you know massively overhaul it you know it's not so different a book than the one that you know so many folks rejected it's a matter of fit it's a matter of just finding one yes one entity to say yes you know we see a vision for this as you have written it sure we're going to edit to tighten it up and, and make it clear and make it more cohesive and coherent and make it the best work it can be. Um, But the bones of these stories remain the same. And so, you know, it definitely is is an underdog story. And I hope, you know, that people have been encouraged by that. Well, I think there's so many lessons in that. And I am so grateful to so many aspects of that story. First of all, to your agent for having sort of seeing the vision, seeing the theme and mm-hmm. saying like, I think we can do something with this. Like if we have three, this is this is the base. And I don't know that I've ever heard of, you know, I, I feel like most fiction, right? Like we have the completed thing that we're taking out to yes. editors. And it's amazing that your agent said, this is strong enough for us to take out and the right person will say yes. Mm-hmm incredible she knew and so something I do now in all my spare time is I poach people away from their agents if their agents are not good to them (laughs) Mm. like do you want to talk to my agent because this is how your agent should be like 
uh, skilled enough to help you, you know, grow as a writer if they're like an editorial agent like mine is. Um, but they should definitely be like a fan. They should be like a cheerleader. They should be championing you. They should be encouraging you and challenging you and and really, you know, celebrating you and and checking in and saying, what's next? And what about this? And what I'm finding is that that's not always the case. And mm. so um, I have a lot of people that reach out and, and um, they, they're so happy as all of us are. Like when an agent finally says yes to us, we feel so thankful, right? We forget that agents work for us and the that they agent should be- works for you. Absolutely. Say it. Yes. And they have to earn that commission. Like it's not, it doesn't stop when the book deal is signed. Like there are other things that your agent can and should be doing for you. And um, and so I've been just just so fortunate to have that kind of agent. And so I'm always like whispering and telling people like, you don't have to put up with that. <laughs> you know? like really you your agent doesn't answer your emails are you serious oh well, or you're no. struggling with your editor I, and you know yeah, and you yeah. cc'd your agent and they acted like they didn't see that fire right. them you know right <laughs> so. right well i know so we have a whole other episode we're gonna go very deep oh, right to everything about the don't get business. me started <laughs> the last thing i want to say is i'm so grateful to you for sticking by your own vision of what you wanted this collection to be. Because you've been talking about this book now for a very long time. And I yes. imagine <laughs> that it would be a different situation if you weren't wholly proud of this, of yes. this book. And I feel like this yes. is a book in which it is just so beautiful. It it reminds me of home. It's so familiar and warm. I recommend it all the time. It is that kind of book that people who don't read short fiction, it's they say, you know, I don't know, like you said, I don't normally read short fiction, but these stories, you know, Mm -hmm. there there's something in them. And I think that ties into, you know, your dedication to what it is that you wanted these stories to be, which are stories for and about black women. So thank you for that, Disha. Thank you. Along the themes, so of course, all these stories are about, you know, church ladies, you know, specifically black women who are in some way connected to Christianity, even if loosely, you know, through their mothers Mm -hmm. or mother figures. But for me, the third time I read this, this collection, it occurred to me that I had also kind of like not thought very much about another word that's part of the title, which is secret. Mm -hmm. And these stories are teeming with secrets. Yes. And I'm just curious to know the role that secrets play in your fiction when you're sort of coming up with inspiration for for these stories or for any stories that you're writing, really. Sure. So one of the ways that I continue to grow as a writer and one of the the challenges I've had um, writing short stories and working on uh, my novel is that I have to remember, I have to kind of work extra hard at coming up with high stakes and to get um, to allow conflict and messiness and and tragedy to befall my characters because there's no story without conflicts and messiness and something at stake and the higher the stakes the better and you know and I, and that's just I think kind of basic storytelling and secrets are just a, the site of so much potential potential conflict potential messiness having something at stake the you know the the stakes are uh, around keeping something secret you know what is at stake if that secret gets out 
And so it's, I think, asking what your character's secrets are, you know, deepest, darkest secrets or most delicious secret or the secret that would change everything if it got out. And then also, you know, with secrets, there's the elements of surprise. You know, there's the revelation that comes with, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? With secrets, that's the word. <laughs> um, the, you know, there's revelation that that comes with it. And I was talking to Kiese Lehman about this once that, you know, we both love stories where we're aiming less for resolution and more for revelation. And so secrets you know, once revealed, what do they reveal? And not just the obvious, which is the secret itself, but what does it reveal about your characters and their circumstances and their future? Not just, you know, the secrets, often things from the past, but what does it mean for the present? What does it mean for the future? So secrets are just ripe for fiction and imagination because of those, that core basis of conflict and having something at stake. I'm so glad you used the word ripe because when I when I think about these stories, I think about how juicy they mm. are. They're so juicy <laughs> and like <laughs> page turning. And I think as baby writers, you know, before we really know how to craft a story, mm-hmm. you kind of have this idea because literature seems very overwhelming. It seems like, you know, something very mysterious and that mm-hmm. whatever you write, it has to be super subtle or super like yeah. quiet, you know what I mean? And I love that this book is just explosive and sort of like is resisting that idea Mm -hmm. of the subtlety and it really is I mean I think secrets and high stakes are absolutely key to to a good story you know that Mm -hmm. has like tension and conflict and, and all of those things that for some reason when we're younger writers we tend to kind of lean away from that because we think mm-hmm. it's not artful for whatever yes. reason yep but it makes it what it actually does is makes your stories like exciting and mm-hmm. you know um relatable It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So mothers and mother figures also loom very large in the collection. So there's ideas about the shame that they pass to us, Mm -hmm. the examples they set, uh, the beautiful memories that we have of them, even if the relationships are strained. You mentioned that you hadn't really noticed certain themes emerging in, in the stories you were writing. Was this one that you were conscious of or intentional about? Or was it one that kind of occurred to you later? It wasn't until after I turned in the completed manuscript to the publisher that I was like, huh, there's a lot of mother-daughter stuff in this. And I know that just sounds so disingenuous because there's so much mother-daughter stuff. But that's just how how much of that came from my subconscious. And I think it was because, um, not I think I know it was because my relationship with my mother was the defining relationship of my life. And um, she died of breast cancer when I when she was 52 and Mm -hmm. um, and I was in my early 30s. And I thought, you know, when she passed away, you know, I I said everything I needed to say. And and I think she said everything she wanted to say. And, and, you know, we 
um, were, you know, the clo- as close as we'd ever been um, in the six weeks that she was in hospice. And I felt like, you know, we both were able to to let go and, and you know, there was no unfinished business. Ha! <laughs> Clearly there was a lot of unfinished business for me. Um, and it showed up in my stories. But I think that that's what can happen when we don't do that thing you were just talking about, which is like worry about, is this artful? Is this subtle enough? I think if we trust, like, for for example, what Toni Morrison said about memory, because a lot of my stories are rooted in memory in my childhood and, and growing up in, in our hometown of Jacksonville, Florida. And so, of course, there's memories of my mother and, and other Black women and, and church women and outside of the church women. Toni Morrison said, the act of imagination is bound up with memory. Wow. Like, you know, that just gets me so excited. And I feel like that's a great way to describe how these stories came about. But they're they're bound up together, you know, and that's how it was for me that, you know, when I start imagining stories and bringing in, you know, these feelings of nostalgia and these memories I have and, and seeing what emerges, if I am not trying to force something, whether it's a style or a tone or a message with a capital M, something really lovely and necessary emerges. And for me, Clearly, it was the mother-daughter stuff because it's in pretty much every single story in the collection. Some dynamic between mothers and daughters. You know, sometimes there's a mother who is dying or silent, but still very much present in the narrative and present in in her daughter's life and and thoughts. Um, And then there are other mothers that are more present, you know, physically and in other ways, like Olivia's mother and Peach Cobbler. So it sort of ran the gamut. But that was a lesson for me in in just trusting myself. And I, you know, I I know we're going to talk about Snowfall later, but that was the story for me where memory sort of almost enters a trance-like state. And I just felt when when I read that Mm -hmm. story, I feel the world around me in my my home in New York just falls away. And I feel this ache in my Mm. chest because like I remember there were so many specific memories in there that felt similar to mine, in a sense, the young and the restless and grandma and (laughs) like the clothespins outside on the line, like all of those things and the mm-hmm. way that you structure the sentences. But we'll, we're going to get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, I'm curious, <laughs> what, what story in the collection is the first one you wrote? Eula. Eula was first. Oh, so the first yeah. one that appears in the book is the first one you wrote. And then what was the last one you wrote? The last one I wrote is Instructions for Merry Christian Husbands, even though that's it doesn't appear last. It's next to last in the book. Interesting. So what was the journey for you as a writer between Eula and Instructions for Married Christian Husbands? Oh, my gosh. You know, when I was writing Eula, I was not at all aware that I was building a collection. Just, you know, that was a standalone story. No expectations of anything at all. It was just this idea that I had around the fact that in traditional evangelical Christianity, especially the the more restrictive sects, you know, there's all this talk about not being tempted, you know, so you're not supposed to have sex before marriage, you're not supposed to marry any way other than heterosexual, heterosexually, and that, you know, women shouldn't be alone with men lest 
you know, men be tempted, lest they be tempted. So there's a lot of restriction and constraining and a lot that's forbidden. And the burden, I know you'll be surprised, uh, audience, is on women to, (laughs) you know, to maintain all of these rules. And so as a result, who do women end up spending most of their time with? Other women. And, you know, whether we've been repressed or not, we're all by nature sexual beings and we have these desires. What do we do with them? Oh, and by the way, masturbation is forbidden, too. Right. So, you know, talk about a perfect storm. Right. So you've got all these hormones and you've got all these restrictions and, and you know, and, and the propensity to, to, to hide things. Because the idea is, you know, the church is the original don't ask, don't tell institution. Right. Um, and so as long as you don't flaunt things or as long as you don't get caught at things right so I was like this is so ripe that you know we'll never know how many church women have sex with each other because it's an outlet you agree to keep each other's secret right because there's a mutual benefit for keeping that secret and not, no one's the wiser and I was also thinking about sort of the the ways that 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 brand of Christianity can really infantilize us as adults and really kind of oversimplify life with this sort of really weird rule system, right? So you can do whatever as long as you ask for forgiveness, but if God is really in your heart, you won't want to do those sinful things anyway, right? And it's like, wait a minute, slow down. I can't keep up with that. That was me as a kid. Like I was thoroughly confused by all of this, but I thought about how that manifests for different people. So I, you know, I knew of this couple in college that the guy in the couple became a Christian in the midst of their dating. And so they would have, they would pray for forgiveness first, then have sex, then pray for forgiveness (laughs) afterwards. Oh, no. So in the church, that's called, you know, following the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, you know, how, you know, women, especially older women might who haven't gotten married, you know, might handle this. And that's when I got the idea of these two women who get their needs met with each other. But they have a, their own code, which is we're only going to do this once a year. And then in Eula's case, she's going to pray about it. <laughs> for forgiveness in the shower with his shower, in the cap shower. On. exactly <laughs> and then you know reset until the next time so then you and of course you know who doesn't love a good same time next year kind of story right you know oh amazing so we've talked before about how the first story in a collection sort of sets the table for the entire collection mm-hmm. in terms of giving the reader a taste of what's to come and letting them decide, you know, are you going to rock with this or not? And I think Eula absolutely um, serves that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the stories that kind of most clearly lays out these ideas about the hypocrisies of the church and the, the quirks of the church. And I'm curious, so for the real life church ladies who've read this book, because I know there have been some, there have been mm-hmm. some book clubs and all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is this the story that you get the most scandalized feedback about or how does that work so the people who i hear from directly they're not typically scandalized they are like excited like what okay i'm in you know strap in let's 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 go but what i've heard from more than one person which i think it's hilarious that multiple people have been doing this is they will send this book to like their mother or their churchiest auntie and with no explanation, none. Huh. So the first thing they would read is Eula. And so <laughs> they then will text or call the person that gave them the book, usually another black woman, and uh-huh. be like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> but what you got me reading. <laughs> exactly. But they keep reading. 
Of which course is, they do. You know, that's the thing. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who picked this book up, read Eula or started reading Eula and were like, no, hell no. But like my, I have three aunts. And um, when I did an event with the Jacksonville Public Library, like you did, they all came out and they got copies of the book. And um, we were in the parking lot and I said, listen, you guys are going to get home or at some point you're going to read that first story. Do not call or text me. Text <laughs> and call each other. <laughs> I tried to warn them oh, the way others gosh. have not. I think it should come from if, if you give this book to a church lady, there should be a warning before they read you. <laughs> Well, it's all kind of meta, right? Because yeah. like, their, their secret is that they're reading this very juicy book. And I won't name the aunt, but while we were at the event, uh, I whispered to one of my aunts and because she used to bring home from her job because she worked at Duval Publishing Company and those books that they can't sell anymore, they take the cover off or whatever. And there were some like racy, sexy books in there that I would sneak and read. I would go into her closet and when I was at my grandparents' house and read it. And she was horrified. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, those I, ladies, they have Zane. They have like yes. all of them books. And this one now yes. this was pre-Zane. This was 70s and 80s because, you know, oh. I'm old. Mm. And um, and so she was like, D. And I said, don't worry, I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so it's interesting. This time when I read this story, because this is the th- third or fourth time I've read Eula, um, the thing that struck me this time is the setting that you choose. Mm. Um, In terms of the themes of the story are very timeless, but it it occurred to me, oh, this was very intentionally set on New Year's Eve 1999 heading into 2000. And I was curious why, why that year? I think it's because if memory serves, because it's been a long time, I think I I took a a workshop. um, I want to say it was... David Haynes's workshop on the narrative engine. I am a Cambilio fellow and David founded the Cambilio um, Center for African-American Fiction. And it's a retreat just for, and a fellowship just for black fiction writers. And um, his craft talk that summer when we were in, in Taos was about the narrative engine. And he introduced this idea of having a clock ticking literally or figuratively. And so I was like, that's what this story needs. It needs a clock ticking. And I thought that Y2K was a fun clock and and that, you know, Y2K came and went and we just sort of moved on with our lives. So I thought it would be fun to kind of go back to that moment where we didn't know what was going to happen. Right. So much uncertainty, so much tension. And then you combine that with the countdown that happens at the end. It's sort of like, it's a climax in more ways than one, let's just say. (laughs) And you know what was, was fun about that ending and that that climax, Den Norris, who is now the editor in chief of Electric Literature, at the time was the fiction editor at Apogee Journal, which uh, published Eula before the book came out, and um, and so Den was was doing notes and in rev- revising, and they we were literally the day of they were going to publish because it was in print. It only recently is available digitally at the website. But they were about to go to print and Den was like, can we just go through these notes, you know, just a couple more things. And I just dropped everything was like, yes. And we were in the Google Doc together and I and like the ending just wasn't working. And with Den, you know, right there, like watching me, you know, type and then backspace, backspace, 
tight like and it's weird like you know it's like having somebody read over your shoulder as you're writing which not you know i never have that and then that countdown just came to me and den was like yes and then we sent it out into the world (laughs) that's amazing so talk about writing under pressure right (laughs) the pressure of the ticking clock (laughs) yes literally i was writing a ticking (laughs) clock as the clock was ticking yes The other effect that the countdown had for me was it had me sort of thinking about the characters past the ending. And I Mm. wonder if you also think about your characters past the ending and what you imagine happens with Eula and Carolotta after that countdown. Or do you do know? Sure. So typically, I don't think about them afterwards. But the, you know, there are two exceptions. One you know, because of my HBO Max show, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about them now, you know, after, you know, what happens next, you know, we're moving forward in time, the show is actually going to be set in the present. And so a lot of the script that I'm writing is where are they now, basically, and and, and what's happening and what's what has happened since we last saw them in the book. Um, but the one character that stayed with me, after I wrote their story was Olivia from Peach Cobbler. But again, subconsciously, I didn't know that she was still with me until I was writing Instructions, which is the last Uh story in the collection. Uh And I got to confirm a theory of mine. Yes, (laughs) yes. yes. Go on, go on. You know, there's a section in Instructions early on where she's sort of talking the narrator who who we don't know who she is and I didn't know who she was as I was writing her I was writing to discover her um and she says something like I own a bakery and I make the best peach cobbler in town and I wrote that line and I was like it's Olivia (laughs) and I surprised myself and I used to roll my eyes when writers said that their character just showed up and told them who they were I'm like yeah right no that really happened and I think it was because while I was happy with the ending of Peach Cobbler where Olivia is sort of stuck with the mother she has uh, because she doesn't have anywhere else to live um My heart just Olivia just stayed with me like that poor girl like she's so many of us who were stuck like our homes are places that we basically have to suffer through until we can get out, you know, I mean, and, and my home was not, you know, let me not be dramatic. It was not like as bad as it was for Olivia or anything like that. But I think that that's the reality for too many of us. You know, we are pretty much at the mercy of the people who raise us because if nothing else, we just can't afford rent, you know? (laughs) And so she stuck with me for that reason, I think, because it's like, well, what ultimately happens? Where does she land? And given who raised her, who does she become? And is she happy? Is she free? Uh, how is she, you know, relative to her mother? You know, what kinds of choices um, is she making now? And so she pops up in this story. And I think once again, I don't know that I resolved anything. There's no real resolution because the interpretation of that revelation of where she lands is, you know, we see Olivia as an adult 
through our own experiences and our own values and our own fears and our own desires. And so there's no one answer. But I love asking book club people when they invite me to talk, you know, they're asking me questions. I love to ask them the question, you know, is Olivia happy? Is she freer than her mother? And there's and and people are able to do something that is, you know, we are not always good at this kind of nuance, which is to say, I wouldn't do what Olivia, adult Olivia is doing, which is serially sleeping with married men, but I'm happy for her, right? I mean, that's what I, you want, right? Listen, <laughs> the voice of that story, let's, so let's skip ahead to that story. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so the voice of that story is so strong and so declarative and so sure that you can't help but kind of be a little bit like, okay, Miss Olivia, like a little bit... <laughs> She is very much in control. Yeah. Very much like this is what it is and very self-aware of Mm -hmm. what brings her pleasure Mm -hmm. and not very judgmental of herself for that. Right. And I had to kind of admire her a little bit, even though, you know, you do kind of go into that story, like, what kind of person is this? And so the added knowledge of that sort of peach cobbler becomes kind of like a backstory for for this character. And so it has kind of an interesting effect there. But I would say that she is, hmm, is happy the word? satisfied mm-hmm. i guess would be but would be the the word for me what do you feel about olivia in that story i think especially knowing her background i'm happy for her i think happiness is fleeting though you know yeah and 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 we define it differently and i think that by her own definition she is happy because for her being in control is the goal. And so right. she has succeeded because ultimately she can control she controls these relationships. Now over time she may find that this that, that she doesn't get the same satisfaction. And that's what I anticipate that this is not really sustainable. Right. This this detachment, you know? this never yes. getting getting involved or emotionally or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing you know for sure is that she will never be sort of beholden to a pastor Neely. Right. You know right. that. Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing too. Not only, you know, not beholden to a man like that, but she will never be at the mercy of anyone the way she was at her mother's mercy. And I think that's just as important for her. One thing that I also kind of changing gears a bit that I picked up on in this in this read Eula also, to me, kind of tweaks some of the pop psychology that, you know, uh, around how to get and keep a man. Like, I'm thinking about (laughs) all this stuff that men put out, you know, like Steve Harvey, think like a man and all that, (laughs) which it's very, for lack of a better word, it's a problem. (laughs) Like a lot of times. Was that something that was on your mind when you were writing this story? Or am I just reading into that? No, it definitely was, but not Steve Harvey specifically, though Steve Harvey was like a few years after, um, or maybe, you know what, there was probably some overlap in the like, the 90s, the late 90s. All that stuff around the rules, like there's always been versions of it. It's not just black folks too. It's been all kinds of crazy stuff coming from men about like what women need to do. Exactly. And it was during this, um, during that era, the, the thing that stood out to me was this waiting for my Boaz. 
And it, I think it's such a misreading of the Bible story, <laughs> you know, because she doesn't actually like, it's not like she was dating, you know, Ruth in the um, Bible. It's not like she was, you know, going through a lot of dudes. And, and then it was like her Boaz showed up or like men were trying to date her. And she was like, no, 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 I'm waiting. It was like her mother-in-law, her husband had died. She was a widow. Her mother-in-law is like, hey, there's that guy over there. Go lay and lay down with him, you know? So there was no mm-hmm. waiting. <laughs> <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you know and he and he was he was good he kept them from starving so yes he was a good man but somehow christians and in their infinite mediocrity got hold of that story and it turned into like a whole cottage industry because it was well, all it was designed for was to try and and tell single women don't have sex that's all right before you're right. married. You're going to wait Oof. for your Boaz. You're waiting for the man that God has for you, basically. And yeah, and it becomes this whole other kind of dogma in religion. Exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, they were, they did, it was like the mugs and the t-shirts and the, you know, the whole thing. Because of course, we got to commodify these things, right? You know, Christianity, what is like the Twitter thing? It's like Christianity, capitalism, shaking hands. And it was like (laughs) between the waiting for the Boaz and the Proverbs 31 woman. That was also that moment, you know, the godly wife. And it's a it's a set of uh, verses in, in the book of Proverbs that describe this, you know, godly wife who is just impeccable in every way and a servant she doesn't sleep she makes her own cloth it's like you know basically that we're supposed to do everything and so that is also the standard and that was also commodified in the 90s and the the early 2000s so i was thinking about that but to your point it's a long tradition of you know these templates for who we should be always driven by men and even you know Steve Harvey and some of the other incarnations of it seem to be secular but they're all rooted in Christianity oh, and Christian dogma and patriarchy and patriarchy yeah yeah You know, I could talk about Eula all day, but moving (laughs) on to not Daniel, uh, story number two in the collection. And this is a story, this is probably one of the shorter, this is the shortest story in the collection, I believe. It is. Mm -hmm. Um, And in it, the narrator is connecting with a man that she meets at a hospice center while both of their mothers are dying of cancer. And so although Mm -hmm. it's so short, it's touching on so many big things, grief, guilt, pleasure, comfort, so much. And this, Disha, is where I struggle as a short story writer because I don't know when to shut up yeah. <laughs> and, and when to stop following all the threads that I've put in the piece and let mm-hmm. a single moment or a single encounter carry that weight. Yeah. So how do you know where to begin and end your stories and especially like this story? I can relate to that. The first writing class I ever took because I don't, I don't have a, an MFA or any writing-related degrees. And my first writing class was at the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts. And it was a flash fiction class. And I just was not successful in that class at all because I could not write flash to save my life. I just couldn't do it. Teacher was great. My classmates were wonderful. We read great um, flash pieces. I was so inspired and I just couldn't do it. And what I discovered, you know, and and it's not like I was aware of it at the time, but looking back, and, and I think this is true for so many of us with our writing, whatever we're going through just as people, 
you know, wherever it's going to influence the writing. And I know that sounds like duh, but this is what I mean. I was at a place where there was so many things, especially rooted around my relationship with my father and also in, you know, in my, my first marriage where I felt unheard and I felt misunderstood and I felt ignored. And that showed up in my stories because I felt like I had to explain everything. And so I was, you know, committing the what this one craft book calls had horrors, which is you tell about talk about what had happened and you stop the present action cold. And to this day, when my my agent is reading my work to edit it, she's like, "Okay, make sure we get back to the present action quickly because I will digress. And so what has helped other than getting past the fact of feeling like I have to explain myself in my personal life, you know, and, and, and healing the wounds that I had from childhood around being misunderstood or dismissed or ignored, you know, healing that helped me to be a better writer because then I felt less compelled to explain things and I could trust myself more and I could trust the reader more that in these smaller strokes, in, in, you know, well-chosen turn of phrase, a, a small description, it could speak volumes. I had to get healthier emotionally. I had to grow in skill as a writer to, to learn how to do that before I could, you know, write a story like Not Daniel. And then having a ticking clock again at the outset can help as well. And so I knew going into that story that I wanted the story to span the length of their one sexual encounter. And so, yes, there's some places where I, you know, have some flashbacks to some earlier scenes, but the beginning was going to be the start of that sexual encounter and the end was going to be the end of that sexual encounter. So it's like, you know, when you go bowling and you don't know how to bowl well, like me, you put those bumper things in. <laughs> it's like that, right. you know, it's like build it in, yeah. mm-hmm. building those parameters, set that clock to ticking. Like this is the space we have. And being conscious that when I did those flashbacks, they're very brief, which means they've got to be the most impactful things that I can think of. And so that's, you know, that's how that one came about. And then endings in general, I like to end on what I call a sigh, which can be interpreted a lot of ways. It can be like we talked about earlier, revelation, like something's revealed, resignation, you resign to something, celebration, or just sort of bliss. Like think of all the contexts in which we sigh. And that I like to end on that kind of note in a story. I love that going into the story, sort of knowing the tone that you want the the ending to be, Mm -hmm. because I often don't know, you know, I'm not a planner. I don't outline Mm -hmm. very much. I don't know the specific details. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is the feeling that I wanted to have at the end. Yes. And trust that, because I think so many of us have been told, just like you were talking earlier, like, oh, these rules that are really just elitist and gatekeeping rules. Like it has to be subtle and it can't be sentimental and it has to be ambiguous. And it has to, you know, the ending has to have all of, you know, you got to outline and all that stuff. You don't have to, but to say, I mean, that's such a profound thing you just said, I'm going to go with the feeling. And I, and those are the best stories, right? Where you can tell that the writer wasn't worried about all of that other crap, you know, but there was, it just, they were feeling something Now we're feeling something. It may not even be the same something, but that ultimately that emotional connection with the story, with the characters between, and and the story is the conduit of connection between the author and, and the reader, 
that we can trust that part of us that's tender. We can trust that part that simply feels and that that's valuable. You know, when we try to say that it always has, well, first of all, it's a false dichotomy between the, you know, the, the, the rational mind and the craft mind, if we could call it that, and the emotions. I think emotion and craft and writing, they're just inextricably tied. That One is not superior to the other. And I think we've elevated this idea of craft at the expense of the emotional part. And then, you know, for those of us who have, you know, marginalized identity, it's assumed that somehow we don't think about craft at all, you all know, right. and, and it's not. It's that these things are working in tandem. And I think that people are more, more writers are capable of doing that. They just don't give themselves permission to do it. Well, you're segueing beautifully to Dear Sister, which for mm-hmm. me in the collection was a really beautiful illustration of complex emotion with craft and the mm-hmm. way that you combine or you juxtapose laugh out loud funny moments <laughs> also with painful moments. And there's there's a little section that I want to read really briefly, if you don't mind, um, oh. in which the narrator's Uncle Bird is reminiscing about a conversation he once <laughs> had with the narrator's late father, Stet. So Stet, I'm already. <laughs> Stet, <laughs> listen, listen, listen. Stet then had a lot of babies <laughs> all around town. And in this story, Nichelle, on the occasion of this philandering daddy's death, is writing a letter on behalf of her adult sister to another sister they've ne- never met. And so she's talking about her uncle Bird. Um, and he says of, of her father, she, he says once to her father, you the only motherfucker I know describe his kids like a spade's hand. Uncle Bird mimicked my father's slow draw. Oh, I got five and a possible. We both laughed. And then Uncle Bert was crying again. Grief is like that. He hadn't just lost debt. He'd also lost his four other siblings all too soon to drugs, violence, or both. We barely got to know our aunts and uncles. And so like how you go from a moment that is so hilarious, Mm. right? But also deeply painful, you know, Mm. because it's a funny memory, but it's also like, you know, Uncle Bird really misses Stead. It's his last living sibling, you know? And it's just like so, so touching. And this story, okay, this story had, this story was so black. (laughs) I was like, wow. It had the pet names. It had the spades reference. It had dreams about fish, right? Which is like a a folk thing down south with us black folks. It has Tashita punctuating, quote, each word of her last sentence with a clap. And my favorite part, right, about the pastor at the funeral Quote, and then he did the thing pastors always do at the funeral of someone who hadn't darkened the church's door in a few decades, reminded mourners of their own mortality and where they are likely to spend eternity if they don't get right with Jesus. Listen, I have pretty much every funeral I've been yes. to. Yes. Oh, God. Like you like that? wrap it up. Shit. Wrap I it know. up. <laughs> So one of the things that brings me the most joy about like reading writing that I, I really love is I imagine the writer and the process of them writing. And I imagine them sort of laughing to themselves as they're writing the story. And so I'm mm-hmm. picturing you sort of writing the story. But like, 
tell me what it was like for you to mm-hmm. kind of go through all of this spectrum of emotions sure. um, and to create these characters because there's mm-hmm. a lot of characters in this story. It's yeah. very heavily populated. And yet each of the sisters is very distinct and mm-hmm. memorable. Anything you can say about that? Sure. So it is Dear Sister is the most autobiographical story in the collection um, because my father too was a Rolling Stone and I have four half sisters I'm sorry yeah four half sisters that I know of we always say that we know of Mm. Um, and you know four of us um, we didn't grow up together so that's different Um, and and that's one of the things I wanted to create in the story is to give those sisters relationships with each other that I didn't have with my sisters unfortunately Um, and you know and as messy as they are there's it's still they're still very loving and they're very close and so one of my sisters our mothers kind of raised us close But the other two, like we knew each other and we met a few times, but we did not really connect until the occasion of of our father's death. And so we were sitting around my uh, stepmother's house the week, you know, of his funeral. I was down in Jacksonville. And just as an aside, I remember that was when Superhead's book came out. So we were actually Uh. sitting around the dining room table. (laughs) <laughs> reading parts of that book out loud and um, and uh, scandalizing our stepmother's mother who said to us, you know, you guys have another sister, don't you? Then, you know, she deserves to know that he died. You should be in touch with her. And so we were like, yeah, we should. You know, we knew of her and we knew that like she didn't want anything to do with our side of the family, understandably. And so uh, it just, <laughs> it's such a random thing. Our stepsister had her phone number long story won't get into that and so we're like let's call her yeah all four of us on speakerphone <laughs> like don't wow. and can you imagine getting that phone call right that's Ooh. too much because one it's just overwhelming and it's emotional for someone who you know this was not a chapter of her life that she wanted anything to do with um and then ha- for the four of us to call at once implied that we were this collective and that we had had something great and she was on the outside of it and that nothing could have been further from the truth and so needless to say she was not like she was polite but she wasn't we were like trying to meet up with her and she was like okay yeah and then that didn't happen for years like 2019 was the first time we were all together and we called her in 2005 oh goodness um, wow yeah so the letter, the you know, Dear Sister is an epistolary story. So that should have been a letter, you know, right. that was the right way to do it. So it was a do over in that I could write how I wish we had handled that. I could write what I wish my relationships with my sisters were when we were growing up. And it's a little bit of a revenge fantasy because the moment at the graveside where the father's daughter, one of his friends hits on her, that really happened. That really happened. Oh. And and I was too stunned to do anything. So I just stood there and then I just walked away. And then later I was like, why didn't I cuss this man out? Why didn't I do something? You know? And so I got to do it in the story. (laughs) Right. Well, I I love that as inspiration for for stories because my novel was basically wish fulfillment, like wishing that Mm -hmm. Opal Jewel existed. Yes. Like that's that's one of the most fun things about mm-hmm. fiction is creating the world that you wish had been. Yeah. And and living through the story in that way. 
And you know what, you asked me about the side by side emotions of, you know, sadness and, and, and laughter. And, you know, that's a gift that my mother gave me um, before she passed that those six weeks in hospice, we laughed more than we cried. And, oh, you know, I and, and, and I always joke that like around that same time I was getting divorced. And so between my mother dying and and getting divorced, like I developed a sense of humor. And maybe it was like a survival mechanism, but I think I had been a very humorless person <laughs> up until that point. I was a very, oh. very serious person. And, um, and, but my mother just sort of modeled that for me. Like she was just unabashed and just funny and blunt. And, you know, cause I mean, you're dying, right? So why not say whatever the hell you right. want? What's, what can people do, you know? Right, um, right. So it just, it's just, it's like a gift that she gave me and it, it just showed up in my writing, but especially in Dear Sister and, you know, Tashida in that character in particular. Yes. I remember writing some of the foul stuff she says and I'm like, no editor is ever going to publish this. I just know they're going to make me take it out, but I'm going to put it in. You know, I'm not going to censor myself. And they didn't take in and, and my editor at West Virginia University Press, like we've talked about it. She was like, oh, no, I never thought about taking it. I love Tashida. <laughs> it's amazing. She's great. And she's so as a reader, like you said, like she's so pleasurable to read because she just doesn't says anything. And it's like yeah. on one hand, it's like, oh, girl, what are you doing? And then on the other hand, it's just hilarious. Right. I've had guys yeah. DM me like I want to meet Tashida. Sir, <laughs> she's not real. <laughs> It's a compliment to you, though, as a creator. Right. Yes. How are you going to slide into the DMs of the author, you know, the fictional <laughs> character's, you know, creator? I want to holler at her. <laughs> oh, love that story so much. Thank you. And then, so now I want to talk about first lines. Because okay. the next story, of course, has, I think, what is going to be one of the classic first lines of short fiction. My mother's peach cobbler was so good, it made God himself cheat on his wife. <laughs> when and how did that line come to be? Was it always the first line of this story, or did it emerge later? No, it was the first line. I got the idea for this story because I wanted to uh, submit it for consideration for this food-themed anthology. And I just remember thinking, I wanted to write about a dessert. And I was like, what's the blackest dessert I could think of? And I thought about peach cobbler, which I, you know, scientifically I can prove it's not the blackest dessert. Pound cake is the blackest <laughs> I dessert. I was going to say, I was going to say pound cake or sweet potato pie right. have a good claim. But they for whatever reason, peach cobbler came to my mind, but it's so much better than either pound cake or sweet potato pie because of the textures and the sweetness and there's a sensuality to it that the other two don't have. Yeah. But yeah. I was thinking of the blackest dessert and whatever that came to mind and then I was also thinking about so a story that I had written many years ago as a baby 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 writer and it was based on my childhood experiences where of who I thought God was I was just it was so literal as kids are that when people said God was up in heaven I thought God was in the clouds so I would literally like look at cloud formations and try and find God's face and like the beard because I think I was confusing God and Noah and Moses <laughs> like 
<laughs> you know, all these pictures. So I, I thought that literally. And then I also got confused about God and pastors of churches, like, because they would be reading the Bible or speaking in the voice of God and saying, I, and I thought that the men standing in the pulpit were God. But then I went to, my mom took me to this revival once when I was like five, no, yeah, maybe five or six. I was young. And suddenly there was a woman pastor and she was absolutely beautiful. And she had on this white clergy robe and I didn't know what to do with that because she was in the role of God. But I, even though they did that, there's the whole verse about God being, you know, man and woman. He made both in his image, which is kind of contradictory. And I, I, my five-year-old brain couldn't handle all of that. And so I wanted a character who was little, like I had been, trying to grapple with this notion of who is God and thinking, you know, that the pastor was God. And then, you know, sex on the brain. It was like, and he's sleeping with her mother. Go. That's <laughs> so, amazing. And then you bring in the peach cobbler and and I had my blueprint, I guess. So fantastic. So it's such a heartbreaking story. And it's about a narrator who is really just starved for her mother's love. Mm -hmm. And the mother was probably, for me, the most challenging character in in this collection. Um, I felt so angry with her, so frustrated by the coldness and cruelty toward Mm -hmm. her daughter. And then sort of what she's setting up inside her daughter, as we see payoff Mm -hmm. later um, in instructions for married Christian husbands. How did you feel toward the mother writing her? Because it's not as if I don't hate her. I do feel some level of empathy for her. But how did you, were you able to hold some empathy for her? And where was that empathy for you? So I definitely didn't want her to be demonized. But I also didn't want to tell her backstory because this isn't her story. It is Olivia's story. And I wanted it to wanted to see her through Olivia's eyes. And so for most of us, our parents are a mystery. We don't know sometimes ever why they do the things they do. Or if we do know, we don't find out until much later. And so I knew that Olivia would experience her both through this frustration and this hurt, but also love. You know, and so Olivia, as her child, could hold all of these different feelings towards her. And I also wanted to be able to try and convey that to some extent in the story as well. And so it shows up when she, you know, tries to warn her, don't be anything like me. It shows up when, you know, she tells her, hey, I've done what I've done because I'm trying to keep the lights on. So it doesn't make it right. And it's not a full explanation or an excuse for her behavior. But I was hoping that it would humanize her. And and I think that subconsciously where it came from was the fact that, you know, I'm a mother as well. And I hope that my daughters can see the mistakes I've made through the some kind of lens of grace you know, as I've had to do with my mother, even though she's gone, you know, we don't really see our parents, especially our mothers as people until later in life, if we ever do. And so I think that the reader, our inclination is to see her as a person, as a mother who has hurt her child, but we're not thinking, you know, she was probably hurt too as a child and it doesn't excuse it, but 
You know, can we show some grace? And is our judgment swifter for mothers than fathers? Is it swifter for black mothers? Like I wanted us to sit with some of those questions as well. Do do we have space for black women to be imperfect mothers? I hope Mm. so, because I'm an imperfect Mm. mother. Yeah, I might not do the things that mother did, but there are other ways where I have not been the person that my daughters needed them to be. And it's interesting, you know, the other thing about instructions for married Christian husbands, where we see the adult Olivia to think about is, do you think she's reached that space of being able to have grace for her mother mm-hmm. for being imperfect? Has she grown in that way? Yeah. To have? Yeah. You know, in instructions, when I was writing it, she just sort of alludes to her mother and says, I said I wasn't going to be like her, but here I am doing the same old thing, you know, but and then I didn't really think too much about her mother beyond that. But writing the TV show, we see Olivia still, you know, engaged with her mother. So it's not a thing where she has cut her off. She's very much involved in Olivia's adult life. Oh, wow. And so that's been really interesting to write. And so that relationship is one that we really are excited about exploring on the show. So Next comes the two stories that I'm very excited to see. I call this kind of like the couplet of the collection, the the romantic section of of the collection, the soft place to land, Snowfall and How to Make Love to a Physicist. Um, Snowfall is, I've told you before, it's my favorite story for the way that it unlocked memories through those I miss lines Mm -hmm. um, and the trance-like nature of them, but also just the sort of beautiful um, act of service that the girlfriend character does for the narrator at the end, which I just like, I, I would have like dissolved into a puddle of tears right? like, if that <laughs> happened to me in real life and sort of redefining what home means for that character. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if I have a question to ask about this story <laughs> rather than just talk about like what it was like to write it, what your intention was in writing it and, and how you got into that space of memory Uh, And longing that's in the piece. So, you know, the way I connected with Snowfall was around that cold and displacement, the physical environment. The first line of that story is Black women weren't meant to shovel snow. (laughs) And um, it was a record freezing weekend when I was writing this story, the, the first draft of it, and just sort of just dreading how cold it was. And I tend to stay in during the winter and then having to tend to snow, you know, getting somebody to shovel me out or having to do it myself or whatever. It's just, it literally makes me miserable. And so that's how I was sort of connecting with these characters first around this sort of the the sense of being from a place where this was not what I was used to. And even after, you know, this fall, it will be, or this summer, it will be 25 years that I've been in Pittsburgh and it's got gotten harder and not easier over time. I resent it more (laughs) as time goes on. And so that was sort of my entry point for the story is that, you know, I kind of gave my disenchantment and my frustration and my resentment to these characters who have also come from a cold place. And so the cold is literally, you know, a barrier for them. But then, you know, metaphorically, it is 
the opposite of what they've known as home. And then it sort of turns the question on them, which is, you know, where is home now? Are we making a home for each other? And how can we do that when we each have these very different relationships to the homes we left behind? And so that was the impetus for, for that story. And then the, the main character, Arlita, just, you know, she has this moment where she is estranged from her mother, but then she has a literal fall on the snow and ice. And her immediate thought, which is primal for so many of us when we're in a wounded place, is I want my mother. Um, and that's something that, you know, my mother has, has been gone 17 years. And whenever I, you know, am in a wounded place, gosh, I want my mom. Even though our relationship was complicated, and even though when she was alive, I did not often turn to her for various reasons. But now, oh my gosh, it is so primal. And so I imagined what that would be. And, and that, you know, there's that complication and, and messiness of, yes, my heart of hearts cries out for my mother, but my mother has also hurt me and has rejected me and I still want her. And, you know, that sort of harkens back to Olivia and her mother. Like children cling. Children will keep showing up for us as adults long after we deserve it, you know, sometimes. And there's that piece of it, too. So those relationships are so complicated. And and so for me as a writer, just ripe to explore um, through imagination. That image of Arletha's mother in the flashback sort of pulling her daughter onto her lap with relief mm -hmm. in you know, well, there is a whole like ice storm. Was it an ice storm or snowstorm that happened in 1989? Yes, yes. <laughs> you remember. So my father worked across the Matthews Bridge and oh. got stuck across the Matthews Bridge for a couple of days like, wow. because of that storm. But it was a big deal in our hometown. And just that memory that I had along with that sort of really beautiful, tender image of mother love, because there really is nothing like that mother mm -hmm. love, you know, mm -hmm. that um, would pull a big old teenager onto yes. her lap, <laughs> into her arms, you know, so beautiful. And so how to make love to a physicist. I have taught this one a oh, few times now you. Um, for characterization. It's part of my characterization lesson. And the reason I teach it is because it is so wonderful as the reader to see all these sensory details about Eric that Lyra is sort of like, she has like a little checklist in her head, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's all these things, these little details that are drawing a picture of who Eric might be. And you as a reader get excited that maybe Eric is someone that she can get excited about. Right. Um, and so in drawing Eric as a desirable romantic prospect, right? What, mm -hmm. what were the most important ingredients for him in your mind? His intellect and his patience. And, and because without his patience, <laughs> you know, there would be no story because she was trying it. <laughs> she was, listen, I mean, she ghosted. Twice. Like, Girl, what are you a doing? Good, a good black man, too. <laughs> good black man, listen, he is, he is great. He is fantastic. And so is... The uh, Tony from When Eddie Laverne yes. Comes, who we'll talk about in a minute. But yes. 
the the detail that that I love the best and that I always kind of point an arrow toward in my lesson is when he removes his cap, she sees those moisturized baby dreads, the mm-hmm. keyword being moisturized. Yes. Like here is a man who takes care of himself. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that. and for me, that is, you know, his attention to detail um, and, you know, and it kind of spoke to some of my own experiences that if, you know, people are careless with themselves, they're going to be careless with you, too. Um, and so, you know, in the African-American community, moisturization is a key, <laughs> a key element of caring and 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 good, good grooming and uh, and and speaks well. I mean, our one of our worst compliments is for somebody being ashy, you know, and certainly your locks should not be, you know, dull and dry. And so, you know, that was a signal that he is someone who, you know, minds the details and and that's someone that's who she deserves somebody that would really see her and really tune into you know who she is and as great as he is though the healing work that she needed to do she needed to do that primarily for herself i did not want him to rescue her that was really important to me um narratively that she be her own savior Mm, love that. And let me also ask you, are you involved in the casting of The Physicist for the HBO Max? <laughs> I will be. So um, Tessa and I are both executive producers. And so as such, like we had a dream cast list that we started as soon as this deal was done. I do have a shared document with Tessa Thompson. Very excited to okay. say. And um, and so I'm useless, though, because I will list like every black person in But I've been trying to kind of shape it for, you know, by character or whatnot. But I, you know, and I've been hesitant to say anything publicly about like who I might think. But I'm happy to hear who you might think would be a good physicist Mm, you know well listen (laughs) i I have some inside information about who might be good for the physicist and i I am not going to share that right now oh but maybe maybe we will start our own google document yes i am so down for that i am so down for that because i do have a lot of black women listed i have fewer black men um Mm -hmm. so please please Mm -hmm. would you like to you know Mm -hmm. consult i need you you know Mm -hmm. donnie walton consulted on the casting happy to happy to and then we move into Jael, which I, you know, I that's will say my girl. So. That listen, Jael is. I love her. She's only fourteen, and she is incredible. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk for a little bit about her grandmother, Granny, um, who is a character who, for me, might actually be one of the most shocking characters in the entire confession and mm. the entire collection. I said confession. It I was works. Thinking about the confession that, that she, she makes. makes. On, mm-hmm. Page 140. Mm-hmm. So she is, this is the first time that we kind of get into a first person point of view with the kind of church lady that the other stories are critiquing mm-hmm. in a way. And what was that like for you to kind of inhabit so directly a character like that? It just felt like home. I mean, I was raised by my own grandmother. And, you know, it was my mother and my grandmother there in the house. And then for a brief period when I was away at college and, you know, when I would come home on breaks, my great grandmother lived with us. And so, I, you know, I've always been surrounded by older women. And so, you know, she was the perfect juxtaposition, you know, against this 14-year-old girl 
who is just flouting all the rules. You know, she's talking about, you know, sucking dicks and, and being saved. And she's, you know, lusting after the preacher's wife. But she's putting it all down in her journal, which should be her private place. And then to have her grandmother, her great grandmother, actually be the person who sees these private thoughts and then tries to figure out what she needs to do about them. You know, it sort of sets them up as polar opposites. But over time, we realize that, you know, Granny isn't exactly as she presents herself to be. And in fact, you know, like all of us, she has a past and she has a history. It's again, how do we choose to frame it? You know, and she just mentions it very casually. You know, the the time that she has, you know, I don't even... No, I think she does say, God, forgive me. You know, she she recognizes that what she, she did was considered a sin, but she didn't dwell on it, you know? And I think that so many church ladies, as, as you know, to use the colloquialism, you know, contain multitudes, as Walt Whitman would say, but doesn't everybody? And why wouldn't they? You know, but I think sometimes we forget because that's they, there's a face that they want the world to see that is pious. I never know how to say that word, pious. But there's always more beneath the surface. So whether it's, you know, Granny's Secret whether it's, you know, the grandmothers and aunties in um, Snowfall, the one with the one gold tooth, who's my grandmother, by the way, my grandmother had a gold tooth. And so they are just like, even they just embody that. So my grandmother's walking around like a grandmother, and then she has this gold tooth. So what was that about? And I never asked her, you know, gosh, I regret not asking her. And so in these stories, that's one of the things I get to do is just imagine who they were and then how did they get from there to here and is it that they have a a single face that they want to show us or do we only allow them to show one face because I don't think my grandmother was trying to hide anything from me and she was not a church lady but I could only see that one dimension of her and the story of Jael, so an- another thing that makes the story unique is that it sort of directly is drawing from a biblical mm-hmm. story or verse. Um, and I have to say, this is a blind spot for me. We went to Bethel Baptist for like three weeks in <laughs> sometime in the late Do you know that was my mother's church for a time? Are you serious? <laughs> the world is Listen, so small. <laughs> we went there I, long enough for me to get baptized. I got baptized. And my, my dad at the time had a carpet and upholstery business that he was trying to like get some customers for. So <laughs> that's why we went to Bethel Baptist for a short period of time. So I'm very unfamiliar with Bible stories. Mm-hmm. And I was very curious when you came across the story of Jael and mm-hmm. what drew you to it. Sure. So I came across the story, not in the Bible, but reading about her story somewhere else. And I don't remember now where that was, but read about it. And my mind was blown because it, what, it, what it did, it was describe sort of the viciousness of the crime that Jael commits. And I just remember thinking, I know that the Bible is a violent book, but I'd never read violence being enacted by women, not, you know, at all. So I was like, I am saving this. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'm saving this story. And so I went to one of those, you know, Bible sites online, found it, 
cut and pasted into a document and sat on it for probably like at least a year. And then when I, you know, was writing additional stories and I knew I wanted to write some stories, you know, around this theme, I knew I was building a collection when I started working on Jael. And so, you know, what if somebody named their child Jael? Why, why would they do that? What if she was a 14 year old black girl? What would the implications be of her name? What would she be like? And so in answering those questions, the story started to develop. And then we've we've talked so much about instructions for married Christian husbands. So I'm going to go to when Eddie Levert comes. Yes. And so this is a collection that is full of incredible names and nicknames. We have Eula, Caroletta, Lily, Tashita, Miss Maybell, Miss Mayretta. <laughs> and of course, all the biblical names that I'd never heard before that are in Jael. But in this one, we get daughter and mama mm-hmm. um, for reasons that are very clearly explained in the story. And I was interested, I I was wondering if you ever thought about revealing daughter's real name. Mm. Do you know what it is? No, I didn't give her, she doesn't, even to me, her name is unknown, even to me. But wouldn't that be a cool thing for the TV show? (laughs) Yes, it would. A very cool moment. So no, I don't, I don't know it. Another thing for the Google Doc. Exactly. I'll put some ideas in there. Exactly. Cause you know, cause it can't be like, it can't just be like Lisa, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no shade to the Lisas out right. there. <laughs> and why Eddie Levert? Because let me tell you there, our mothers had lots of lusty crushes. Yes. Uh, men. And Eddie Levert, I thought was a brilliant choice, but I'm wondering why him and not, I don't know, Barry White or sure. who else? Well, I mean, the story is really an homage to my mother and my grandmother. And Eddie Levert was my mom. I mean, my mom was obsessed with the OJs. And she does have a picture. She went backstage and got a picture with them one time when I was little. And I wish I knew where that picture is now. And so because she was such a big OJs fan, then I became a big OJs fan. And so the the story is really uh, an exploration of what it was like for both my mother and my grandmother to be caretakers of mothers who were not who they needed them to be. So my mother was taking care of my grandmother for a time. And before that, my grandmother was taking care of my great grandmother, who, you know, had not been there for her. Um, my mother and my grandmother lived together my until my grandmother died. And so they were physically together. But, you know, there were lots of ways that my grandmother wasn't who my mother needed her to be. And so I imagined, like, what must it be like to be the caretaker and the primary caretaker with no, you know, they did not have relief. There was no respite care that, you know, they could take advantage of. But really having to take care of mothers who were suffering and who were in decline without having had their wounds not even healed, but just even acknowledged to my knowledge. And so that was me exploring what that might have been like for them. I love too that just as there's generations of women in this story, there's generations of Levert heartthrobs. Yes. You have Eddie and then Cheryl. Yes. yes. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the other amazing things that's happened for this collection is not only is it going to be made into a television show, but it is being published in the UK and Germany. 
um, getting all these translations. And I understand there's a 10th story in the UK edition. Yes. So, well, yeah, I was just going to say to clarify, it's only in the Waterstones exclusive edition in the UK. If you want the 10th story, you have to get it from Waterstones. But elsewhere in the UK, it's the same as the original edition. But um, the 10th story is actually a story that I pulled from the collection initially. So when we went to market with the partial collection, there were six stories altogether, three that I had published elsewhere, three that had been unpublished. And then uh, it sold to West Virginia. And then I needed to keep writing until I got to 35,000 words, however many stories that would be. And as I'm looking at the stories I already had, I just thought that this one story called Must Love IPAs, which is about a woman who is so desperate for a date for New Year's Eve, she pretends to like IPAs because it's what's in this guy's <laughs> dating profile and she doesn't even like beer. And so I didn't love that story. And now, in, in, you know, in hindsight, it's because it wasn't a very good story. And then I also wasn't invested willing to invest the time and energy to rewrite it. So I just pulled it and figured I'd put in something I was more excited about. So then when the UK folks came to me with this possibility of an exclusive story, you know, they're like, hey, you got a story lying around? Like, actually, I do. (laughs) And so I got excited then about going back into that story and seeing how I could make it better and how I could make it fit with the collection and and really be able to hold its own alongside the other stories. Well, I am very excited to get my hands on it somehow, some way. (laughs) (laughs) So so last two questions before I let you go, because we've been talking a long, long time. The hardest part of writing a short story is? Reining it in. (laughs) Reining in that backstory. I'm better at it. But it's still the hardest part. And my favorite part of writing a short story is? The magic, the discovery, to be able to surprise and delight myself. The magic is a great place to wrap this up. Disha, this was a treat. Thank you. To talk about these stories at this level with you. Thank you so much for your generosity and sharing absolutely everything here today. Well, Donnie, thank you so much. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. Ursa is a brand new thing, and we want to keep producing great interviews and stories for many more seasons to come. So if you'd like to support the show, leave a five-star review and comment in Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling especially generous, you can become an Ursa member by going to ursastory.com join or subscribing inside Apple Podcasts. We'll use those funds to help pay for another season of Ursa. Thanks, and we'll see you soon.